Salutations, friends, and welcome back to the arcade. We are your video game podcast here, back with you for yet another week in the month of October. And I say another week because it is another week to you, to me, to everyone else. But in the podcast sense of this program, it is our first week in the month of October as we have been away for the past several weeks, past two weeks specifically on this program. We were away last week in observance of the Thanksgiving holiday weekend here in Canada. And prior to that, we were away as we had a wonky recording schedule that week. Just couldn't line things up. These things happen. We are adults with lives taking us in separate directions, but we have now joined together back again for the recording of this program, and we thank you so much for joining us once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and children of all ages. It's it's good that we're all back together again, isn't it? Yes, and when you say we're all back together, you're of course not speaking just to yourself and whoever else might be listening, but I am also here. Oh, thank God. Yes, <laughs> the second Woo! voice of the... I'm the second voice on this program, as always. This week, I'm Dennis, the man who is raising a glass to Eddie Van Halen. Ah, uh, yes, the sad news coming down last week that uh, guitar pioneer, legend, yeah. um, someone whose face should be on the guitar Mount Rushmore. Yeah, right. I mean, Jimi Hendrix, Eddie Van Halen, for sure. Then it's debatable who else, but those two, for sure. Les Paul, probably. I think Les Paul should be up there. Yeah. In terms of originators, uh, innovators. Yeah. Uh, he was there in the the dawning, in the early days of uh, the guitar movement, the early electric guitar movement. Yeah, I mean, he we wouldn't have solid body electric guitars without him. Um, but any event, yeah, I mean, Jimi Hendrix changed how the guitar sounded. He kind of made it a lot louder and noisier and opened up the sonic possibilities. Then Eddie Van Halen changed how the guitar was played. He did. And like, showed how ridiculously it could be played. Yes. And, uh, yeah. And basically ever since, people have been trying to emulate him. Yeah. And no one really has. No one's, no one, you might have people who somewhat can recreate that sound, but there's a level of talent and ability that will never be replicated. No, I mean, there's only kind of one per generation. Of course, we're not saying that there aren't really amazing guitar players out there. No, I mean, I can list off, you know, hundreds of guys who were just like, no, these guys are amazing. But, like, they weren't, you know, the originals. Nettie Van Halen was an original. Absolutely. So, unfortunately, he finally uh, lost his battle with cancer, which, uh, in the wake of the news of his passing, I was entirely unaware. He had been battling cancer for about 20 years. Yeah, like, I knew that off and on, you know, there was... He had some throat and tongue cancer at some point, like I want to say maybe 10 years ago I was aware of kind of thing. And, you know, that's when he was making some claims about, I mean, everyone points to the fact that he was kind of a smoker for a long time, like kind of a heavy smoker from what I understand. Uh, kind of always saw him with a cigarette on stage and stuff. But he was pointing to the fact that because he used copper guitar picks, and, you know, he would put them in his mouth and they would rest on his tongue. You know, where he rested them on his tongue was apparently where he had cancer in his tongue. Which, okay, might just be a coincidence, though. But anyways, and then he always, you know, made the claim that he was living in the studio pretty much and was always surrounded by electromagnetic waves and stuff. I don't know if there's any validity to those claims. But, yeah, he did also smoke a lot. Let's just... That can't be uh, uh, dismissed. No, it can't be. But, of course, we're not going to 
the damage is obviously done and you know it, it's it's a shame but uh yeah he left behind a hell of a legacy he sure did yeah i mean millions of guitar players inspired ever since that first van Halen album came out and everything he did pretty much was inspiring at some point i think my favorite any van Halen story is the fact that he came down to the studio when Michael Jackson was recording Beat It and basically helped kind of change a bit of the structure of the song. He offered some songwriting ideas as well as played the guitar solo. I think it was two takes. I heard one take. I, I heard they, I think they kept the first take, but he wanted to try a second take and then just decided not a first take was better. And he did it for no money because he didn't want, he did, he took no credit either initially because Mm -hmm. he didn't want a big legal situation. He just wanted a chance to work with Quincy Jones. And apparently as payment, they gave him a pack of beer and the promise that one day Michael Jackson would teach him how to dance. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Do we know if that was ever uh, followed up on? Oh, I don't know, but I just, I think it makes for a good story. Sure does. Yeah. Like a lot of these things that are, you know, coming out or like being reminded of, you know, about how much of like a class act he seemed to be. I mean, when Dimebag Daryl was tragically shot down in 2004, you know, he was, he was a huge Van Halen fan. Apparently for a few years, you know, he'd become friends with Eddie Van Halen because I guess when you get to a certain level of being a guitar player, he just become on the radar of Eddie Van Halen apparently. And he just be kind of, eventually kind of becomes friends with you, I guess. And Dimebag Daryl was one of those people. And, you know, he was apparently constantly, while he was still alive, was still kind of constantly hounding Eddie Van Halen, being like, I want to buy the guitar that you played on the, that was on the cover of the first Van Halen album. Please, please, I want to buy it. I think it'd be so cool. And then, you know, apparently Eddie Van Halen was like, no, no, I'll make you a whole new one. It'll be way cooler. And then when Dimebag Daryl was shot down, Eddie Van Halen's sign of respect to Dimebag Daryl was he gave the family the guitar that was on the cover of Van Halen 1. Just gave it to them, and he's buried with it. Wow. Yeah. Because as, as he said, I guess like the, the note he... I guess he signed the guitar as well, and on it he, he wrote, an original deserves an original, which is like super nice. Mm-hmm. Really, like shows what a class act he really was. Like, yeah, like things like that. It's just like... Amazing guitar player, amazing influence. He also, people kind of don't think about it, but he also influenced the actual hardware of guitar. Now, I'll be a guitar nerd for just a second. I'm not you gonna, can't help it. I can't help it. I mean, I've been playing guitar for two-thirds of my life. I can't really, <laughs> <laughs> it's inescapable, but um before Eddie Van Halen, like there were Fender guitars and there were Gibson guitars, and each had separate tonal qualities, Gibson guitars had humbucking pickups, as they call them, because Fender had single-coil pickups, which would cause a bunch of noise and pick up a bunch of 60-cycle hum from everywhere. And just when they're plugged in, there's just like a certain amount of noise that's just kind of in there. But humbucking pickups, they have two coils beside each other, and they they cancel the hum out, I guess, scientifically, whatever. There's something with magnets. I'm not that type of... uh, Scientist, I don't understand. Almost as if they generate an inverse field. Something like that, yeah. But anyways, long story short, these humbucking pickups 
also have a bit of a fatter sound. They respond to distortion a, a lot better than um, single coil pickups, which are in Fenders. But Fender guitars have the whammy bar on them. So Eddie Van Halen wanted the best of both. So he basically hacked up a Fender guitar, or wasn't even a Fender guitar. It was like a knockoff guitar, just um, some, as he called it, the Frankenstrat. It was basically just a bunch of parts from other guitars that he put together himself because this thing didn't exist. So he took a pickup out of a Gibson, put it in this Fender style guitar because it had a whammy bar and then put it all together. And that's what he used in to record the first album. And yeah, it's like no one really thought to do that before him. In addition to several other things like locking tremolo systems and stuff, basically he helped design because he was the first one doing that kind of wild tremolo use and other minor things like, you know, the variable voltage idea for basically using the voltage as your volume control for your amp. So you can crank your amp so that the tubes get all the power, weird ideas like that, that no one really thought of before he did. And yeah. And then culminating in him basically designing an amp with PV that has basically become the de facto amp in some variation form for basically all of modern metal for the last 25 years, the 5150 amp that later became the 6505 and whatever else. Really cool stuff. Like a lot of people kind of overlooked this fact, but he was really a gear nerd too, which, and he helped like bring guitar along like technologically as well. So I think people don't give him that credit either. And also, there's another thing. He filed a patent for um, some device, like, basically, like, it's kind of a silly thing that just basically, I think it's something that straps to your belt or flips out from a guitar so that the guitar can actually be, while you're standing with it, it could be rested up, kind of like... So it's flat? So it's flat, kind of like, you know, a pedal steel guitar kind of thing. I think it was mainly just so he could play it like a piano. <laughs> some showman thing, but... There's a patent at the U.S. Patent Office that he filed for it, and in it, it has the most fantastic drawing, because you know how there has to be diagrams of patents? Mm -hmm. It's basically him with his tongue out, with his shirt off, playing this thing, like, looking like a total rock star, in his patent. (laughs) It's fantastic. (laughs) It's It's like 1978 Van Halen, like, just in full glory, just... (laughs) <laughs> just full wild rock star band. Yeah. Just a pick, like basically this hilarious, like patent style drawing of him in that state with this guitar thing. Just, it, I don't know if it even properly shows what it is. It's just a funny patent is all, <laughs> but yeah, little things like that. Ridiculous. Like what a life led. Absolutely. Uh, now if I'm recalling my Eddie Van Halen stories, uh, here at the moment, uh, did he not also help to teach Dweezil Zappa guitar? Yes. Like, was was he not, uh, like, didn't uh, Frank Zappa direct Dweezil and perhaps uh, uh, one of his other children, but mostly Dweezil, to go learn from Eddie Van Halen? Well, I think the way that it worked, from what I understand the story, was in a guitar interview, some guitar magazine, like Guitar Player or Guitar World or something, back in, like, the mid-80s, you know, when Frank Zappa was still kind of at the height of his prominence, he, I guess, was asked who who he thought was good out there on the guitar at the moment. And, you know, he mentioned, like, a couple people, and he's like, oh, and that Eddie Van Halen kid's pretty neat. 
because I guess it was like the early mid eighties when Eddie Van Halen was still a kid and Eddie Van Halen saw that and thought that was really cool. And because the type of person Eddie Van Halen is Eddie Van Halen found out where Frank Zappa lived and just showed up at his house and just knocked on the door. And I guess he wasn't home, but Dweezil Zappa being Frank Zappa's son, you know, young guitar player himself, like loved Van Halen was like, I think from what I understand, 13 years old, he answered the door and Eddie Van Halen was at the door and he was like, Oh my God. <laughs> and it was just like, you know, I guess him and Frank got to talking and it was like literally a thing of, Oh, well, why don't you show my son some licks? So he taught Dweezil Zappa how to play eruption when he was 13. Good Lord. Which is why when you hear Dweezil Zappa play eruption, it's legit. He knows he, he, he gets everything perfectly. And it's because he learned it from Eddie Van Halen directly. <laughs> That's, a level of tutelage few people have ever received. Yeah. Amazing. How cool would that be? Like, just, my favorite band is Van Halen. I answer the door. Eddie Van Halen's at the door because my dad said something about him, and he likes my dad. What? (laughs) My brain is on fire. What the hell's happening? I can only imagine what would have been going on in the young Dweezil Zappa's brain. That's when you can't process the moment. No. There's no hope in hell of a 13-year-old of any age, regardless of, or or of any stripes, regardless of who you are, being able to process that moment. Like, no. your idol coming to the door yeah. and just being there. Yeah. Oh, and they're going to teach you some things. It's like, oh, well, learn some hot guitar licks off Eddie Van Halen? Of course I do. What am I, new? <laughs> like, yes, yes, please. Here, come into the studio. Here, here's my guitar. I have a one that looks kind of like yours. Here you go, please. No, but I actually, I think Eddie Van Halen brought his guitar because that's just the type of person he was. It's like, well, he probably oh. thought he was going to go play with Frank that day. No, yeah, it's just like, oh, Frank thinks I'm cool. I'm going to go meet Frank, see if he needs a guitar player because, you know, I'm a guitar player. It's like, you don't need to sell yourself, Eddie Van Halen. You're Eddie Van Halen. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah. Insane. It, it strikes me that uh, just in the readings of uh, you know people sharing memories and stories of Eddie Van Halen after his passing, that uh, I really didn't come across any of uh, people saying you know Eddie Van Halen was actually a jerk or whatnot. Like I'm sure probably in the heyday of Van Halen and just the band being out of control. Oh yeah, but every band who achieved that level was out of control. Yeah, every band was. I mean, I'm sure internal squabbles. I mean, Van Halen had their share of, like, internal troubles. Like, I mean, David Lee Roth fighting with the Van Halen brothers. Sammy Hagar fighting with the Van Halen brothers. All of them having their own internal struggles. Mm But at the end of the day, I think it was all just band stuff. It wasn't, like, legitimate personal stuff. It wasn't, like... Well, he like stole hundreds of thousands of dollars from me stuff or anything like that. Or like what a jerk. He made a bunch of racist claims about whatever. Like, no, Mm -hmm. nothing like that. He just seemed like, you know, a genuine guy who liked to make good music and liked to play the guitar. And that was pretty much it. And unfortunately, uh, 2020 has claimed him. So, yeah, uh, but we are left with many stories, maybe many memories and uh, a whole lot of awesome guitar work. Yes. So, So, you know, raise a glass, do whatever you want to do. Listen to a bunch of Van Halen if you haven't been already. I have been. Can't really go wrong. It's true. 
And also, one of the best quotes I heard about Van Halen recently where, you know, someone, I was, you know, people, like certain tweets and stuff go viral on multi-platforms because people take screen caps of them and they go viral and whatever. One of them that I read was just like a, a person saying, upon re-listening to a bunch of Van Halen, I think the reason why it occurred to me that I, I like them so much and why a lot of people probably like them so much is because they're the audio equivalent of a dog wearing sunglasses. <laughs> Which is the perfect way to describe Van Halen's music, if you think about it. Like, you're laughing because it makes sense. Somewhat, it's also just a ridiculous comparison that I, I had never considered before. Yeah. And, of course, now I can't unsee. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's a great quote. Yeah, it's it's very appropriate, very apt. Kudos yeah. to that wordsmith. Yeah. Don't remember what their name was, but eh, they know who they were. They knew who they were. Memes or memes, whatever. They've seen their, you know, tweets go out and get reach, achieve viral status. Yep. Of course, the lesser tweet that didn't achieve as much status is the subsequent follow-up one promoting their whatever. Yeah, of Saying, course. oh, while you're here, subscribe to blah. Oh, here's my SoundCloud. <laughs> like, whatever. As it always happens, but... Sign my change.org petition for... Yeah, okay, next, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. You wasted your moment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but uh, let's move on and actually get into some matters that uh, we are supposed to be here talking about. That, of course, being video game-related matters and content that you are no doubt here for, or you're just here to listen to our voices, and that's A-OK, too. Uh, but we do tend to, given the premise of this program, talk about video game matters, and we're playing a bit of catch-up on the program this week, and we have a ludicrous lead-off to start off with that uh, we are catching up on. It's from a couple of weeks ago that uh, flew under our, ra- our radar, excuse me, and also flew under a lot of people's radar, just given the state of the world and the constant churn of craziness that seems to happen. But uh, this one is great and wins points for the most uh, techno-babble-filled word salad headline that we've come across in 2020. Yep. So, and deals with a uh, topic we haven't spoken a lot of this year because there hasn't been a lot to speak of in regards to it, but it's one of those things that uh, likes to rear its head every so often to remind you that it's a thing, but doesn't really seem like a thing, but it's trying to be a thing and tries to convince people it's a thing but never really succeeds and really just comes across as a flailing of trying to be a thing. We are speaking of the Atari VCS, that old chestnut, that old attempt by the current uh, soulless husk calling itself Atari that uh, they try to maintain and achieve some level of relevance and uh, notoriety once again with the Atari VCS, the crowdfunded, the, the massively crowdfunded, and computer device that was supposed to come out last year, pushed back, was pushed back to March of this year, has been delayed. God only knows if it will see the light of day, let alone when it will see the light of day. So, the news in regards to the Atari VCS is that the company calling itself Atari have announced a partnership with another company called Ultra Gaming, and the two of them are planning to offer, quote, blockchain-based game streaming for the Atari VCS. Blockchain-based game streaming. If you have that square on your Technobabble bingo card, you may tick it off right now, just a little dab. 
And you're that much closer to a techno babble bingo. Yeah. So that wins you nothing other than just being so much closer to an aneurysm. Yeah. Remember when, you know, when Star Trek The Next Generation came out and the actors on the show would often talk about how, like, learning the techno babble of the show was like a language unto itself, but it was all science fiction nonsense. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're past that in actual reality now in terms of like nonsense phrases that actually have meanings, but why? It feels like they're just uh, hacked up, uh, chopped up and uh, all tossed around by some people who are trying to sound impressive, but don't come across as being that impressive to anyone with any sort of sense of the meanings of the words that are being said. Yeah. You know, like basically almost like they're a snake oil salesman. Yeah. I think that's pretty fair to say. I mean, it feels like they're just throwing the phrase blockchain out there just because they can. And I believe it was either last year or a year before, perhaps even the year prior time being the blur it is. Uh, we spoke of the fact that Atari was attempting to launch their own Bitcoin or their own cryptocurrency, not Bitcoin per se, but a cryptocurrency because anyone can launch a cryptocurrency. Yeah, anyone literally can. So Atari was going to do that. Don't know if that ever got off the ground. I have paid it no mind because I'm, well, I'm better than that. I have a better sense and a better head on my shoulders than to look into these things because there's no good that will come from it. No. Whatever information I gain will just be maddening and uh, drive me up a wall. But uh, the partnership between Atari and Ultra Gaming here aims to offer Ultra's digital downloads to the console. And unlike other game streaming services, Ultra here, uh, with their game uh, streaming technology and platform, are promising digital ownership of games through cryptographic signing. And that in theory means that a user or someone on the Atari VCS would be able to resell a game once you've gotten tired of it and then pay for games in Ultra or Atari's own digital currency, hence the uh, cryptocurrency I mentioned a few moments ago. So in other words, this according to John Biggs of Gizmodo, if you change consoles or lose your data, your games are lost. There's that too. Yeah. So every console basically acts, every console slash account on each console is a blockchain wallet. It's a cryptocurrency wallet, which sucks. I mean, if we take the blockchain aspect out of this, what it reads to me is you can sell the games, but you only get store credit back. Mm Mm-hmm. Because this cryptocurrency is not worth shit. No, it's not. <laughs> like, the the fact that um, this, uh, what are they called again? The uh, Ultra... Ultra Gaming. Ultra Gaming. Sorry, they all have such bad names, I can't remember what no, they exactly. all are. The Ultra Gaming, the news that they partnered with the, the shell of Atari, because they're not actually Atari. Like, when you, th- when you hear Atari, you think one thing, but this is not that thing. No, this the, is just the people that own the name. Yeah, the name Atari has been passed around uh, probably seven times between different multinational hedge funds and companies and business entities. Yeah, so that Atari, um, apparently the, the fact that these two partnered up, it made um, 
this private Atari cryptocurrency jump in uh, price from 13 cents to 17 cents equivalency of U.S. dollars. So one coin is worth 17 U.S. cents. So it's not worth anything. No, it's not. So just because Bitcoins trade for a ridiculous amount still does not mean all cryptocurrencies are created equal and equally valued. No, I mean, like, a lot of them actually have jumped up quite a bit because I guess cryptocurrency still is sort of like a hot item, hot thing for some reason with people. I mean, I get I get a lot of the appeal for some people. I don't. I mean, I don't understand it personally and I don't agree with it, of the whole idea of, like, like, we're not a philosophical program or anything, but, like, the whole idea of, like, well, you know, this isn't backed by government, so, yeah, it's, we're not beholden to any government, so it's really just, like, what people want to make it worth. It's like, yeah, but, like, if it becomes worthless, then and if you've invested millions of dollars into it, now it's you've got nothing. So mm-hmm. the benefit of a government backing a thing is that a whole society of people agree on the value of a thing as opposed to just a bunch of fringe people on the internet saying, I think it's worth $400 now. Now it's worth $5. Now it's worth $18,000. Now it's worth $2. Which is basically what happens with cryptocurrency, which is why eh, maybe you should, maybe you'll be a little bit wary if it's, you know, depending on the company. Like, I could see this, that Facebook coin that they're trying to launch be more stable. Mm Mm-hmm. But again, it's probably actually backed by a com- like, a, if not a government, then something way worse than a government, a giant corporation. <laughs> so things like that. But yeah, I don't know. Cryptocurrencies are literally dime a dozen. There's actually thousands of them out there. Oh, there absolutely is. And probably a lot of them are probably all valued around the same as these ultra coins yeah. uh, of 17 cents. I mean, I think 17 cents is pretty good in terms of like, the ones that aren't worth a lot. Cause there's ones that are worth like thousands of a cent, like thousandths of a cent. TH thousands, not thousands, but thousandths of a cent. As in the decimal places after. Yeah. Yeah. So 0.000 numbers. Yeah. One. Yeah. Whatever. Like <laughs> just say one for example, but there's ones that are worth that amount. So, for it to be worth an actual 17 cents is not bad, but of course, you look at that in comparison to like Ethereum or like, uh, Litecoin or Bitcoin, the big, the big one of them all, and it's just like, it's laughable, because these other coins, they have, they, they're worth like hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, like actually thousands, like the big number, no decimal places involved each, like so, yeah. And don't let that be, sound like I'm <laughs> I'm endorsing any sort of cryptocurrency. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I, if you've listened to this program for any length of time and uh, heard cryptocurrency come up as a topic of discussion, you will likely have heard us speak of it in negative terms and just be baffled by it and be baffled by the evaluations involved, or sorry, valuations involved, of how something that has no backing other than the collective sense of people basically saying what they think it should be worth, multiplied by the fact of just how many of those coins or fractions of coins are available in the marketplace, uh, think it's all just a sham or some sort of uh, scam. Yeah. It is something to be taken with many grains of salt. Yeah. I mean, 
I work in the computer industry and I have a hard time really wrapping my head around why people care so much about some of these things. I mean, you, when you, you're mining a Bitcoin or like you're mining a cryptocurrency, you can't mine Bitcoin anymore. It's, no. no, there's no possible way to do that, but you're mining a cryptocurrency. All, like all you're doing is using electricity and damaging a computer or, you know, buying graphics cards and, you know, running them as hot as you can just to try to get some of these things. Like, so I guess the value is just representative of how much energy was wasted making them. <laughs> that's the hard time. Like that's, that's what I have a hard time with because at least with physical goods, like they're an actual item you can hold. And like you, like there's an amount of man hours that went into mining things and, you know, the, what's the potential of what you can do with this thing? Like gold, you can melt it down and make jewelry, do this kind of thing. Same thing with silver. A lot of, like a lot of these minerals and stuff, like, you know, diamonds and rubies and whatever else, like you mine them and then they get made into jewelry, which can be sold for a lot of money and things like that. And, you know, other things like diamonds can be used for a plethora of uses, like mm-hmm. in tools and whatever else. And, yeah, like I, I, I get that type of thing where it's like more like this is a commodity and this is actually like there's a tangible reason for doing this. <laughs> I still have no, I do, I have never fully grasped cryptocurrency beyond it's just a money that like exists outside of the government and like it's like that sounds sketchy. And also, I think uh, it strikes me as just uh, a very involved, very elaborate get-rich-quick scheme. Yeah. Which, I mean, it definitely was. Like, let's be clear. For a lot of people, it was. Oh, yeah. Like, in the initial boom, holy crap. Like, I remember the day that it jumped from $50 to $200. It was like people kind of stopped. Like, what was at work? And people kind of stopped working and were just like, holy crap. What is this thing called? Bitcoin? And like, you know, the, the tale of woe that the one coworker of all of ours had was like, gather around while I tell you about how I used to mine Bitcoins about three years ago and how at one point I had 56 Bitcoins in a wallet. And I, I saw they jumped up to a dollar each. So I cashed out <laughs> and it was like, Ooh, <laughs> it's like that was when Bitcoins were worth $200. He was lamenting. I can only imagine what he's thinking now. 56 bitcoins at what? 10 grand each? Yep. Yeah, like, okay, uh, you messed up. <laughs> you really messed up. But you also didn't know. No. Like, nor could you have any semblance of, or, or any hope of knowing. Yeah, like the guy who bought, who made the first purchase of bit, with bitcoins, what was it, a pizza for like a thousand bitcoins or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back when they were still completely worthless. Yeah. And you could just easily mine them because no one was doing it yet. But, uh, yeah. I don't know. All this talk about this, it basically just further baffles me. And the fact that Atari's involved in this doesn't really surprise me because that's basically all we know about Atari at this point. Or the company that is running the name Atari is they seem to be sketchy as hell and not really providing any sort of Real products? No. Uh, and if you look too beyond the Atari VCS, I believe it was perhaps last year, perhaps the year before. Again, time is a flat circle. Uh, that they ran a crowdfunding campaign to basically generate funds. And they, I'm sure they would say, ooh, gauge interest, but also 
generate other people's money to fund development of Roller Coaster Tycoon for the Switch, I think it was. Switch or like a newer version for PC. Yeah, PC for sure. But yeah, I think stretch goals were for other consoles and stuff as well. But I don't know what came of that. I don't remember. I forgot to check. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't recall either. I'm just going to assume, uh, it's quite cynically, but I'm going to assume nothing came of it and the game didn't release. Uh, that's just my cynical sense of anything that the, the husk that is calling itself Atari right now is doing because they seem sketchy. And if anything, the fact that this company called Atari is involved in anything is going to make me go in the other direction. Yeah. I don't trust them. I will not give them my monies. I mean, I wasn't likely to give them my monies. The fact they're involved with this uh, cryptocurrency company makes it even less likely I give them my monies. Yeah. So, you do you, Atari. Stay the hell away from me. Yeah. Yeah, this this fool and his money are not easily parted. <laughs> it's true. I was pointing at myself while I said that. Now, I, I, can, uh, I can vouch for that. He definitely was. <laughs> I wasn't pointing at Mike the Legend. I mean, you wouldn't be wrong if you were, though. <laughs> I never met a coupon I didn't like. It's, it's true. It's very true. I know this to be a fact. <laughs> it's in my blood. It's in my DNA. What can I say? <laughs> oh, man. But let's move on and speak of uh, companies that actually do have monies and actually do release products uh, with varying degrees of success, although over their long history of uh, 20, 25 years of uh, being in operation as a company, they have more successes than failures that has led them to be the biggest, most evil company going. Yeah. Well, certainly, if not the biggest, then one of the biggest, most evil companies yeah, going. Yeah, they're, they're the first A or the sec, first or second A in that FANG group of companies that we always talk about, you know, F-A-A-N-G, mm-hmm. um, which of course stands for Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, mm-hmm. which yeah, I mean, you 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 hear all that list of companies, and then you're like, "Yep, hundred percent on board with calling them all evil." Yep, yeah, big evil companies, all worth close to a trillion dollars each, if yeah. not more than a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. In the case of Apple and Amazon, they're close to two trillion dollars or past the two trillion dollar mark. So. And growing, and growing, yes, no slowing down. Yeah, no slowing down whatsoever. So Amazon, they're doing okay. There's no, there's no. They're, they're not, they're not flush for cash. No, they're, they're not hurting. They're not hurting. They're fine. I mean, really, these Amazon Prime days that they uh, just recently had, uh, those were really just fundraisers. They're trying to keep the lights on and uh, they're selling everything below cost just to uh, pay yeah, rent. Everything must go. <laughs> <laughs> Big Jeff's crazy Amazon clearance. Hi, I'm Big Jeff Bezos. You can trust me to sell you the cheapest crap for the lowest prices. Here, under the Amazon tent, everything must go. It's our crazy Amazon tent sale. So come on down, which is a joke. I'm sure it applies to everywhere. I'm sure, I'm sure everyone in your own town has that, has had that, you know, public access type place through the years that had their own kind of. They do their own spots. They have like the, the owner. Uh, or operator of whatever business, furniture company, car dealership, um, restaurant, whatever the case might be, uh, that that person is the spokesperson for their company in their ads as well. Yeah. And they are the pitch man, and they're giving you whatever wacky sales pitch as well. 
yeah, there's there's no shortage of them where we come from in Winnipeg. Um, hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed, yes. But, uh, yeah, um, why are we talking about Amazon? Do we want to get our blood angried up? Well, it's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> yes. Gotta so, feel alive somehow, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll speak about Amazon for a reason, because Amazon, uh, as if they haven't destroyed the, uh, the retail marketplace and, uh, uh, put many, many small independent businesses out of, uh, out of business, they, uh, have been slowly and steadily dipping their toes into the gaming business. As you may or may not know, they are the owners of Twitch. As uh, you may or may not know, they have their own engine called, I believe, Lumberjack or Lumberyard. Yeah, they've developed, right? yeah, yeah, they've developed their own game engine a couple of years ago. It's not widely adopted at all, but it's something they're using in-house. I believe this game we're about to speak of and uh, two others, another Amazon-developed game and also Star Citizen, are the one, only games I know of that are using it, so make of that what you will, but Amazon has dipped their toe into the gaming business on two fronts, one you've likely heard of, uh, we'll speak about that in a moment, but this uh, smaller title that you may not have heard of, we will speak of because let's highlight Amazon's failures. They've had too many successes, they've grown too big, let's, for our own in our own way, try and bring them down a peg. Yeah, for anything we can possibly do, even though we won't be able to make any real impact, even if we can give ourselves the illusion of bringing Amazon down a peg, we're going to do it. Absolutely. So Amazon, as uh, as you may know, they are a big company. They have dipped their toes into a lot of things. And as I said, the gaming business. So earlier this year, you may or may not be aware, they released a video game. An actual game, the first widely commercially released game from Amazon was released. It was called Crucible, and it was a free-to-download multiplayer action game. It was essentially a character-based battle royale game. Yeah, but it looked like it had PlayStation 2 graphics and didn't look good. No, it did not look good, which is surprising considering Amazon has enough resources to throw money at anything and make it all work. But they released the game in May of this year with little fanfare, but there was a small... Of user base of players who picked it up out of curiosity, which is interesting because they probably were also playing other games like Overwatch. Like better games that it was a ripoff of. Yeah, Overwatch, Fortnite, Apex Legends. Even uh, player unknown battlegrounds. Exactly. Because the whole gameplay looked to be very similar to other already more popular games. So they tried to go with what was popular and they failed because in June, basically a month after uh, the game's initial release back in May, Amazon retired two of the game's three modes, essentially leaving only the deathmatch mode. And then a couple of weeks after that, still in the month of June. So at most seven weeks, seven, yeah. eight weeks after the game came out, the dust had barely settled on the games being released and the and, you know, picking up any sort of a user base before they just unreleased the game. Unreleased it, meaning they took it out of commercial availability and brought it back into beta, which is a very rare move for a development studio to make, especially when it's one as big as Amazon. Yes, 
But that in and of itself is not the news that we're talking about. No, no, we're not, we're not that far behind the news cycle that we're catching up from June. No, no, no we, we spoke in maligned Amazon then and got our jollies off it, uh, during that period in time. Yeah. So like, as far as we knew up to that point, they brought it into closed beta, presumably to make it a better game because it looked like dog shit. To, to tinker and rework it and uh, try and make it better, perhaps come up with a better premise, uh, make it something that might be more appealing, be able to stand on its own two legs, have a unique idea, or at least not look like such an utter ripoff of other popular titles. With such 10-year-old graphics? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, trying, so they tried not to make a GoBots version of uh, <laughs> Fortnite, Overwatch, and etc. Well, the news this week came by way of a post on the... Uh, uh, website for developer Relentless Studios, who are uh, the developers of Crucible. Poor guys. Yeah. Uh, and they said, ultimately, quote, we didn't see a healthy, sustainable future ahead of Crucible because this game, Crucible, has now been shut down. It is toast. So the development team at Relentless Studios, they will now transition to working on Amazon's big MMO called New World, as well as other projects ongoing at Amazon Games, a full refund for any purchases made in Crucible. In Crucible will be available, and credit purchases within the game are actually now disabled. Servers will stay up for custom games up until November 9th. So, basically, come November 9th, and that point afterwards, uh, Crucible, Amazon's first actual game, is gone. It disappears into the ether, never to return, and the dozens of people who played it may miss it. Or they might not. Or they might go on to playing other games. The dozens of people playing this Amazon release. So, yes. I mean, there was one interesting sounding idea that they tried to implement, or what they were supposed to implement in Crucible, because it was a 12-person battle royale, which was supposed to be, you know, if you're not familiar... It's a last one standing style game where everyone basically goes after each other and shoots each other until only one person remains, like the movie Battle Royale. Yes. You know, the, the classic Japanese, what would you call it, slasher movie? Slasher, action, thriller. Thriller, yeah, whatever it is. Disturbing. Yeah, disturbing for sure. But um, apparently there was supposed to also be a 13th player, which was a quote-unquote new type of player, who can broadcast and directly impact the game by creating events. And it was said viewers on Twitch would be able to interact with this game master character as well. But I don't think that ever came to fruition because the impression I get by looking at the game and also by kind of looking at the size of maybe the, or inferring the size of the team is that maybe Amazon didn't put a lot of resources into this. It's not impossible. Because given the resources that Amazon has, there's no excuse and no reason for this game to look as bad as it did, that you would think, other than Amazon cheaped out on it, or maybe didn't see much of a future. Perhaps this was really just a trial balloon. Yeah, but wouldn't you want a trial balloon to be close to what your actual balloon would be? Like, if, if you want to get into, become a major player in video gaming, you need to put out AAA titles. AAA titles cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make. They do indeed. But Amazon has hundreds of millions of dollars, like, easily. Certainly. 
They they could piss that away and not miss it. Yeah, because they would just make it back within like a couple of months, if not way less than that. Because yeah, they're Amazon. They have basically, if there's all those fang companies, they effectively have unlimited resources. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I know, yeah, technically they have a finite amount of dollars, but the the amount of money that they all have is such a large number that they're effectively infinite. So you'd think that if Amazon wants to make a big splash, they would make a big splash. They would like put a lot of people on it. They would basically hire, try to poach talent from like all the best companies. Mm -hmm. Like you need to make a triple a game. If you're going to make a battle Royale style game, try to get people from blizzard, try to get people from all over. Like, yeah, okay, like, you bought up some company that looked kind of promising that does stuff, but chances are Relentless Studios is maybe a 20-person shop, I bet, if that. And I bet Amazon being Amazon probably put them under a bunch of crazy constraints, and they probably faced crunch, they probably faced all sorts of stuff. Certainly. Even though, you know, there's probably no reason to have to do that, but they probably did anyways because they wanted to squeeze as much money as they could out of whatever little that, you know, they were putting out because that's obviously what Amazon's used to doing. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because in the game realm, the game studio or game release realm, um, that is not Amazon's bread and butter. So I understand the, the want and desire perhaps on their part to wring out as much money, but that is not crucial to the core operation of the company. Uh, as say it is for Nintendo or Epic Games or something like that. So the other arms of Amazon could underwrite and fund development of this game and give it the time and yeah. runway to become something awesome. Yeah, you'd think that Amazon, if they wanted to also <clears throat> be as much of a disruptor in the game industry as they have in, been in the e-commerce industry and in the basically the web infrastructure industry, throw money at it. Throw money at it. Put out something truly amazing. Basically, like, why wouldn't they be trying to go after Valve with Steam? Why wouldn't they be trying to do that? Like, you know, build up a solid stable of, like, first-party games that you can't play through any other platform than the Amazon whatever platform. Mm -hmm. Call it your Prime Gaming or something. Like, whatever. Like, (laughs) make a bunch of awesome games that are, like, truly amazing games, you have the resources to do this. You can hire top talent from everywhere. Hell, steal, steal Miyamoto. <laughs> you probably could. You probably have the cash to do it. It's true. Like, <laughs> do something crazy like that. If you make a power move like that, you're in. You could buy Kojima Productions instantly. You could buy Epic Games. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're in. You, you want to be a major disruptor in the games industry as well? Do something like that. We'll put out a shitty looking, like, basically, like, what looks to be almost mobile game, call it a real game. Yeah, don't put out a GoBots equivalent of Overwatch. Yeah. Because like, that's what it was. It looks very GoBots-ish. It looked very knockoff, like, oh, we're trying to be like this. Good luck with that. Yeah. It, it's, it's clear and apparent you're trying to be a knockoff. Yeah. So, unfortunately, the, the dev team... Uh, like, their work, uh, I'm sure, wasn't realized, perhaps to the extent that they wanted it to. I don't know how much I'm going to place this failure of a game that is crucible on them. Uh, this, given how we have talked through, 
is likely from the higher-ups. You know, this was probably a an attempt by the higher-ups to cash in on a very popular craze, very popular fad, and uh, they simply did what they were told, and now they get to work on Amazon's MMO called New World that we'll see how that goes. That has been in development for a while, I believe, and will continue to be in development for a while, but now it's got an, an infusion of maybe, let's ballpark it, say 20 people to now work on it. Perhaps that will move the needle. It's like, how many people do we have on that team? 25? That should be enough to make a World of Warcraft. It's like, <laughs> really? <laughs> we'll compete with this World of Warcraft thing I've been hearing so much about. Oh, okay, Jeff. Okay. Yeah, all right. As he puts down his PC World magazine from 2006. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. But uh, Amazon has made another move into the world of gaming, as you may have heard. Uh, aside from shutting down Crucible, uh, they announced a couple of weeks ago, sadly just after we had released our uh, previous episode, that uh, they are getting into the cloud gaming service field because that is now just going to be the uh, enterprise of all big tech companies. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be Amazon's power move into it. Uh no doubt leveraging their AWS systems and vertical integration and whatnot and whatever other business terms, but so they're calling it Luna and it's going to be heading to the Fire TV, of course, as well as PC, Mac, iPhone, iPad, and Android soon. There is no firm release time. There's no firm release date, not even a firm release window for this platform yet called Luna. So this is Essentially, the uh, same same deal as Google's Stadia, as well as uh, the Microsoft Xbox Game Pass, in that it is cloud-based game streaming. So all the processing happens on the server side, and all the play uh, is uh, and graphics and audio are streamed to your device. You input the controls that is being back to the server side, interpreted, and all done, and as within the blink of an eye, so that you can play the game without actually having the game right there in front of you. Because so you could actually play the game without actually playing the game. What? What kind of service is that? Oh, I guess that'd be what streaming is, right? Oh, interesting. Anyways, uh, you know, you get to play the game without actually having the game yeah. downloaded or whatever. Yeah. It's all streamed. Yeah. Again, uh, we we are familiar with the idea of streaming and uh, the increasing presence of game streaming in uh, in the gaming sphere. So this one. Uh, whenever it comes out, is going to be, uh, well, it's going to have two tiers. There's Luna, and there's also going to be uh, something called Luna Plus, which is going to be a special channel in the Luna service that uh, is going to be a bit of a subscription model, and that Luna Plus is going to be offered at an introductory price of $6 US a month, and it's going to have over 100 games available in it initially, and uh, I believe that's going to be a more curated uh, selection of games, uh, perhaps some exclusive titles only available on Luna Plus, because how do you indicate that something is slightly different than the base offering? You add plus yeah, well, to the name. Specifically, though, this Luna Plus, I'm assuming they, they said it's good, there's going to be, this is the first of multiple channels, so Luna Plus opens up the opportunity for channels, and the first channel being Ubisoft. Mm-hmm. So you get access to basically every Ubisoft game, from what I understand. It's available for PC for now. Um, 
it's probably going to be like Prime Video, where you have base Prime, but then you also have, you know, different channels you can add into your Netflix Prime, like Stack TV, which has its own network of whatever number, or like, you know, like various other kind of mm-hmm. channels you can add, like onto Prime TV, which give you different types of shows from different developers and things like that. So it's probably going to be the same thing. Like the first of the Lunar Plus channels is Ubisoft. I could see an EA channel. I could see a Square Enix channel probably. I could see any number of different things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, for an amount per month, you know, it could be a good deal if you're rather, rather than having to like keep buying the games or whatever. But I mean, there is the comfort in having a game in your library, knowing that it's never going anywhere because as we know with these streaming services, things come and go and sometimes it sucks if you're like in the middle of a game and it's just like, oh, this game's only available until Friday. Well, what do I do? I can't beat it before then. This is like a, you know, like a Fallout game or something. Like, I can't do that. Like, Well, so. sorry, boss. I'm not, not coming in the next couple days. Yeah, I got to beat Fallout 4. So Before it leaves my service. Yeah. Uh, so standard details, the games will be playable uh, up to 4K, 60 frames per second. The initial batch of games uh, to uh, be included and playable on Luna will be Control, Panzer Dragoon, A Plague Tale, Innocence, Surge 2, Ukulele, and The Impossible Lair. Uh, there's also uh, Grid, Resident Evil 7, Absu, and Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons. So more of those, more games will be added over time. And so games, apparently, according to Amazon, can be played on up to two devices at the same time, just under a single subscription. So that's kind of neat. And if you sign up for Luna Plus and get access to all the Ubisoft games, you'll get uh, all the Ubisoft titles available, as well as the opportunity to play the new uh, Ubisoft titles on their release date when they come out to other consoles and other platforms. So there's that. But... As I mentioned earlier, you uh, may or may not be aware that Amazon owns Twitch, so naturally, there's Twitch integration with this platform as well. Yeah, of course. And so Twitch apparently going to be a big part in this, and Luna subscribers specifically will be able to watch streams of games uh, from within the service and or instantly start playing Luna games from off of Twitch. So if you're watching your favorite streamer, they're playing an interesting game that looks really neat to you, you can be able to pull it up in Luna, if you're watching through the Luna service. Yeah. And download it, or not download, but basically just hop in and start playing. Yeah. Which is an interesting idea. Also, more opportunities for uh, uh, the, I guess, content creators and uh, streamers on Twitch to, uh, well, basically be paid to promote things. Say, oh, Amazon, you want me to you know play this game specifically because it's on Luna? Well, then. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, again, this is Luna. There are more details coming in the future because we don't have a release date yet, and this is simply the initial announcement of Luna and its existence. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Though, if, if it's kind of like how Amazon does other things, I wouldn't be surprised if just one day it's there. True. I'm wondering if uh, by not uh, announcing any sort of even release window... That's the intention, just to leave it open, leave people guessing, and uh, they forget about when it's, uh, or perhaps even just forget about the service in general until, boom, hey, here it is, all up in your grill. 
You can't ignore it now because it's plastered on everything via Amazon homepage. It's on your Fire TV. It's on your Kindle. It's on whatever. Yeah. I could see that being the case. It's splashed all across Twitch. Yep. Yep. All right. I, yeah, I can see, totally see that. But, uh, hey, let's, uh, keep the, uh, train of talking about big tech companies rolling. Uh, there's another A in uh, the FANG stocks, yep. uh, as you mentioned. Uh, the other A is Apple. Yep. We are going to now speak of the ongoing legal proceedings between Apple and Epic Games. Uh, there's not really much to, much to catch up on, and that is the catch-up, that there isn't much to catch up on. Uh, they had a hearing in front of their judge at the end of September, and really the big takeaway from that is the two of them are going to trial. Yep. So the the trial between Epic Games and Apple is going to happen in May of 2021, uh, the specific bench date being May 3rd, uh, and it's going to be overseen by the U.S. District Judge Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers. Um, yeah. So it's kind of wrapped up its proceedings for the rest of this year and uh, into a good portion of next year. Now, Epic Games and Apple are free to still talk amongst themselves and perhaps reach some amicable resolution, which seems entirely unlikely, given that uh, Epic Games has drawn their line in the sand of wanting to be able to offer their own payment scheme outside the and basically deny Apple from their 30% cut of all transactions in Fortnite. Yeah. So, yeah, just as a basic um, summary summary of basically the 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 findings so far of the judge, uh, Judge Rogers has found that Apple is well within its rights to ban Fortnite from the App Store, but Epic still maintains that Apple's refusal to allow external storefronts or payment methods on iOS is anti-competitive behavior. So that's basically the whole crux of this trial. It's really to try to, I'm assuming it's to try to negotiate a smaller cut than 30%. If not that, then basically being a little bit more lax with in-app purchases because, yeah, okay, once once the, all the business has been done with the App Store, fine. That's pretty much all you kind of deserve, Apple, right? Like, at that point, you're disconnected. Like, you're not constantly going back to the App Store once someone's using your app regularly. Like, they're no longer touching the App Store. So it's like, they won't... Like, the idea being a person's bought an Apple phone already. They're using whatever George's app. And then, you know, they've, they've already bought George's app or downloaded it for free because they, they caught their eye in the app store. Mm-hmm. That was the job of the app store. Fine. I mean, yeah. Anyways, George already also had to pay a bunch of licensing fees to Apple to use the tools and stuff. It has to pay a developer license to keep everything active and whatnot. So, Apple's still getting money. Oh, exactly. So that's where the point of contention raises, and I'm 100% on Epic's side, but I'm not very... I don't have my hopes up, because Apple has $2 billion, or $2 trillion, whereas Epic only has, what, $17 billion? $17 billion, and uh, Epic Games is going against, really, what's an established fact of the current digital economy, and uh, basically platforms also having their own... Uh, e-commerce structure. Yeah. Where the host platform gets their 30% cut. 
And it's not just Apple with the, the, you know, you know, the App Store, although that is the most, you know, largest example. Uh, I believe Google, what, a week or two ago announced that they were going to be upping their take from uh, the Google Play Store on things. I think by the end of next year, they're mm-hmm. going to be taking up to 30% cuts. Yeah. And, I mean, if you have a console at home, if you've downloaded a game from the PlayStation Store, from the Xbox Store, from Switch Online or something, and you committed a transaction through there, well, a cut of your transaction is going to the host platform. It's going to Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft. Steam as well. Yep. They get their cut. So this, this could be a game changer if Epic manages to do something with it. It could be precedent setting. It could be basically earth shattering for the current landscape. Could be. Which is why I'm really hoping for a good thing here because, you know, these companies have basically got rich doing nothing. Not, I mean, not nothing, but like, their involvement ends at a certain point, yet they still insist on being paid after their involvement ends, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is not good business. And I totally am on the side of Epic where it's like, no, like, what are you talking about? It's like people already paid. You already made your money or they didn't make their money because it was a free app, but we're already paying you money to be on your store. It's a demonstration of just a naked greed. Yeah. Pure and abject naked greed. That's all it is. Yeah. It's not even insurance money unless, you know, to prevent your knees from getting broken. Yeah, exactly. It, this is basically like owning a mall and then basically working in as part of your rent agreements with stores that are going to open up stores in your mall that you're, you also get a cut of their profits in addition to charging them rent every month. I mean, if you really want to make more money, charge them more rent. It's like if they're doing really, really well, fine, charge them more rent. You, you're not really entitled to any of their profits because they can just move, a, like, in the real world, they could just move away to another mall. They, they could. could open up a standalone store, but there's no app store analog, like, analog for that. Like, you can't, there's nothing analogous to that in the digital landscape. So, which is why it's totally unfair, and I I'm, I totally get it. And because these uh, these companies that develop the their own platforms have their own devices, it's a completely walled ecosystem. Yeah. So even if, you know, Tom, Dick, or Harry were to develop their own app store, it would not be offered or allowed on these platforms. No, because they're going to say, nope, it violates our terms of service. Or, yeah, yeah, sure, you, you could launch your little app store, but 30% of all the money you make on your app store has to go to us. So you better have agreements of your own that are really good with these other people. So like by the time all is said and done, no one's going to want to go with an app store that offers you, that's basically charging you more than 30% of your profit. Like if, if I'm an app developer and if I have to pay 30% to Apple, yeah, I might want to go with a different app store unless they're also being charged 30% to Apple. So for them to make any money, they have to charge me more than 30%. And then, yeah, I'm just getting screwed. So no, I'm going to get better visibility and less money with just Apple. But even still, like still 30%, like that sucks. So yeah. And there's no way around it at this point. But uh, so May, May 3rd is when this uh, trial will actually take place in U.S. Uh, District Court uh, between Epic Games and Apple. And uh, so between now and then, the legal teams will be hard at work on it. And the the large legal teams on both sides will continue to just rake in the billable hours and oh, yeah. 
Uh, four generations of grandkids for these lawyers will now have college bought and paid for. A hundred percent. Off this case. But, uh, it is worth noting that this is a bench trial, which means it's not a jury trial. So, so it's just the judge making decisions, not an actual jury of peers from the surrounding area or yeah. the civilians of the surrounding area. Yeah. So make of that what you will, if that's in one company's favor or the other. Who knows? But uh, we shall see in the weeks and months ahead in the year 2021. But uh, another big tech company, as we round out our trio of big tech talk here on the arcade, is Microsoft. They are not included in FANG, though they are kind of, I guess, that next tier of big tech. After. Well, they were they were FANG years and years ago, except they've taken lots of leaps and strides in the last 10 years towards their image in terms of, like, really really shaking themselves of that evil Microsoft of the 1990s that was was actually sued for antitrust and basically... And lost. And lost. Like, they, they lost an antitrust lawsuit when they were bundling Internet Explorer with Windows, basically putting it front and center when, you know, making people think, oh, this is what the Internet is. The Internet is Internet Explorer, whereas obviously that didn't sit well with Netscape and all of them being like, uh, no... We're also the internet. Like, you're not even giving people a choice at that point. Like, it's just your browser and nothing else. So, but that, that Microsoft is kind of an echo of the past these days since they're basically spending money willy nilly on all sorts of like, maybe not profitable things, maybe things that aren't apparent as to where the profitability necessarily is. But yeah. Anyways, uh, all maybe, that... Maybe they just needed to... Get, they were the first ones, so they got the big evil corporationness out of their system, and they're just 20 years ahead of everyone. Could be. Could be. <laughs> Who knows? But in the gaming sense, I mentioned earlier, they have their gaming, game streaming platform called the Xbox Game Pass that, uh, I mean, is coming to uh, and has come out to platforms like PC, Android, and whatnot, but they really want to get it on iOS. The problem is because it's really a gateway app that would be released for iOS devices, Apple doesn't allow that because... Because of all the previous stuff we talked about. Exactly. And also, because it's a gateway thing, Apple turned around and told them, okay, you can release it, but then each title that would be accessible and playable in the Game Pass service would have to be put up individually for certification on the iOS platform. Yeah. And of course, that's just not going to happen. That's too cumbersome. That's too time-consuming. Hell with that. So Microsoft has been trying to find a workaround, and according to recent reporting from both The Verge and Business Insider, it sounds like, according to uh, uh, what Xbox boss Phil Spencer may have said in a recent meeting of higher-ups at the Xbox division, or Xbox division, is that Microsoft is working on what sounds like a very clever workaround to their iOS problem of getting on the App Store. Yeah, so perhaps lots of people don't realize this, but Web browsers are insanely powerful now. They're just insanely powerful. Oh, God, yes. Like, light years ahead yeah, of so, where they were. Like, you can have native app experiences in a web browser at this point. We've seen, like, I'm sure you've probably used Microsoft Teams. Mm-hmm. There's a Microsoft Teams version that exists within a web browser that you can use that's running inside a web browser. It's not using, like, any sort of computer trickery. It's just purely the web browser running this. Things like, you know, the Google App Suite and whatever, you know, Google Meetings and stuff, video conferencing, teleconferencing, all done within a web browser. 
There's a lot of stuff you can do in a web browser. So Microsoft's workaround for the iOS nonsense is to make Project xCloud run inside the web browser. So on your Safari, on your Chrome, on whatever else that you're running on iOS, that's where you're going to access xCloud. In a hilarious middle finger to Apple, which I can see Apple really trying their best in an upcoming release of Safari to do something to nuke it. But if it's really just a service available on the web, what could they do? I mean, someone may, you know, Apple could do something through Safari, but something like Firefox, Chrome, yeah, whatever, whatever other mobile browser you might use, eh? they only have so much control in terms of mobile browsers. Yeah, exactly. I could see them. I mean, one of the things they could possibly do is, you know, take the Iron Fist approach and then say, no, no other mobile browsers other than Safari are allowed on iOS. But then you're going to piss off a whole lot more people. You are. And then that potentially invites antitrust regulation. More antitrust, yes. And basically losing people to, quote unquote, Samsung or Android, as mm-hmm. you know, it actually is. You know, a lot of people just call it Samsung. Inaccurate, but whatever. Um, yeah, so <laughs> be very interesting to see what this looks like, but it 100% will be possible. So apparently during a recent uh, internal all-hands meeting, uh, Phil Spencer was quoted uh, by way of Business Insider, who had this information. Phil Spencer was quoted as saying, uh, quote, we, will absol- we absolutely will end up on iOS. Uh, we'll end up on iPhones and iPads with Game Pass. Uh, and uh, Phil Spencer noted that he feels good about the company's iOS progress, end quote. So this is... I mean, this makes sense. Microsoft does eventually want to have uh, the Xbox Game Pass service also be browser or available in browsers, even just on PC. Yeah, so this speeds that along. It's it's a concurrent development and also, if anything, a spin-off benefit of the browser development. Well, it's it's the same development. True. Okay, yes. Yeah, so like, because they're working on the web development for it to work in the web... That means it's on the web. So it's just going to work on iOS devices through the web browser and also on any other web browser on any other device that has a web browser. Be it tablet, be it desktop, computer, Chromebook, whatever the case might be. Exactly. So that's a hell of a clever idea. Yeah, it's the right approach. I know it, it goes back and forth in web development every five or six years where people, you know, want to develop for apps like, Oh, new technology starts existing with apps. And then all of a sudden the web catches back up and oh, people want to do more stuff with the web because, Oh, well, what do you need an app for? And you just put it all on the web page, but the new app stuff happens that people go towards apps or whatever they're going to be called back in the day. They were applications or programs. Oh, now, it, now you're just talking old school. Yeah. Cause that's what apps are. Apps mean it's short for applications, <laughs> but now, they used to come on CD-ROMs. Yeah, back in the way back in the long ago. Before that, three and a half inch floppies. Yeah, and five and quarter inch floppies, and before then, built into the operating system. I guess I don't know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, there's no reason why you can't just do things like this through the web. We have crazy web technology now, so yeah, and I mean, <laughs> it's it's not a great solution if you're a Microsoft or a Google. 
and you basically want to have your own little hub for Apple to say, oh yeah, well, you know, you can have a hub Apple you want, but like every single app within it has to be vetted individually. It's like, no, forget you. That's <laughs> yeah. the whole, that defeats the whole purpose of what we're trying to do here. Calm down, Apple. You're off your nut. Yeah. Like, like, I understand that's the approach and because everything on iOS has to be vetted. And if you're do- releasing a gateway app like Stadia, sorry, Stadia yeah. or Xbox Game Pass, then yes, that is a gateway to everything else. And then everything else has to be individually vetted. Yeah. And you are technically also now bypassing the App Store because you can make purchases freely on the internet through a web browser. You can. So... I am curious as to how long before Apple does something to straight up block this on Safari. They might even just release a version of Safari that makes that one website inaccessible. I could see it. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Do we do we then see a court battle battle between Microsoft and Apple? With Apple being the big evil company? Oh, man. Wouldn't that be quite the uh, paradigm shift from those old, hi, I'm a Mac, I'm a PC ads of the long ago? Yeah. All of a sudden, Microsoft is the cool kid with, like, you know, the with the tight dream, the tight jeans and, like, the, the preppy shirt as mm-hmm. opposed to Apple being, you know, John Hodgman. <laughs> oh, man. Or just John Hodgman standing there just, like, counting money constantly. Or John Hodgman of now versus John Hodgman of then. The John Hodgman of now looks a lot cooler than John Hodgman of then. Sure does. John <laughs> Hodgman of then looks like he sells PCs. Yeah. Whereas John Hodgman of now looks like he, uh, he's a barista. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. But, uh, yeah. You know, oh. some wannabe author who works part time at the uh, coffee shop down the way. Yes. You know, he is an actual published author. <laughs> Several times too. Yeah. I've read some of his works. Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. I have three of his books, I think. Anyways. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yes, uh, one more story we'll get to here on this week's program, uh, that, uh, was big news over the past several days, uh, is related to a title that we have spoken, uh, basically anytime they've released a new character pack, which has happened several times because they tend to release a ridiculous character with each new character pack. Yes, a totally unexpected character with each character pack. That seems to pull from 80s cinema. Yeah. Every time. 80s action, like hard action cinema, like legit, like full machismo masculine movies, like as masculine movies as you can possibly think of from the 1980s. You have like, you know, uh, was it Predator or Commando? Uh, Predator, uh, Schwarzenegger from Predator. Uh, well, not uh, Schwarzenegger from Predator, but the actual Predator. Right. Uh, they have Schwarzenegger as Terminator from, uh, the most recent Terminator movie. Right, that's as what a it was. Yeah, so you, you have, you know, those bases covered. You had Robocop as one. Robocop's in there. Uh, you also have, uh, Jason Voorhees in there as well. Uh, I believe Michael Myers. If not, he's, might be the next one, but, uh, any sort of like 80s genre movie yeah. character you can think of, they have pulled and put into Mortal Kombat 11. Yeah. And just recently announced was the next character pack uh, that is going to be a standalone DLC and also included in the newly announced Mortal Kombat 11 Ultimate. So the DLC pack features three characters, where the three new characters announced, are uh, Rain, Melina, and Rambo. Yes, John Rambo. 
from the Rambo franchise played by Sylvester Stallone in the movies. And here's the crazy part. They've got Sylvester Stallone to record new voice parts for Rambo. So it's actually Sylvester Stallone's voice. Unlike Arnold Schwarzenegger, who they got some bad sounding knockoff to do his voice mm-hmm. for the Terminator's character. And it's not a, it's, it's a bad knockoff. It's yeah. not a good Schwarzenegger impression. This is legitimately Sylvester Stallone. Like this is actually him. Which is absolutely fantastic. And the reveal video was insane. I mean, yeah, yeah, Melina, Rain, whatever. Yeah, they're fighting. Fight, 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 stab, 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 blood, blood, blood. But they're, they've been in Mortal Kombat games before. Like, it's not unexpected to see them come back. Like, it'd be like saying, oh, smoke's gonna be in the game. Ooh, okay. Cool. Fine. But like, but then all of a sudden you see like an arrow and then you you hear quotes from Rambo, like the movie being like, the world's deadliest man, and blah, blah, blah. We trained a monster, blah. And then it just shows John Rambo. I don't coming remember, through the jungle. Coming through the jungle. I don't remember what he said, but it was like some sort of, I think it was a classic. Oh, Melina asked him, like, who are you supposed to be? And he just says, I'm your worst nightmare. That's what it was, yeah. <laughs> and then fires off his machine gun into the air. Yeah, while doing a yelling move. The the, the very thing the that typical weird, Rambo yell. The thing that Weird Al parodied when he was doing his Rambo parody in UHF, the whole, and then just blowing up more increasingly ridiculous things, including, I think, the Eiffel Tower at one point. Mount Rushmore. Like Mount Rushmore. <laughs> but, yeah, that whole thing, like firing his rifle in the air, screaming, ah. oh, yeah, that's what it was. What are you going in with? Nothing, as always. <laughs> it's just something like that, where it's like, but you're going into Mortal Kombat? Why don't you bring, like, everything? And that might be the hook. It might be his hook in this uh in that he'll have access probably to everything uh, and some of the other, uh, I believe, cover art for Mortal Kombat 11 Ultimate. Uh, he's depicted as uh, having his longbow. So uh, John Rambo in the movies, especially Rambo 2 and 3. I'm just going to call them Rambo 2 and 3. I'm not going to delve into the weird naming structure of any of that crap. Yeah. Uh, but Rambo 2 and 3, really heavy on the bow and arrow. Yeah, very heavy on the bow and arrow. A little bit in the first part, in First Blood, but much more in Rambo 2 and 3, especially when he starts getting into the explosive tips. Yeah, in 3, when he's going after the Afghan soldiers, or the, the Russian soldiers in Afghanistan, like... Oh, God, he's, yes. <laughs> just shooting guys with a bow and arrow and then having them explode. <laughs> it's like, nothing's more 80s macho action movie visual than that. You know, like, a ripped Sylvester Stallone in peak physical condition just firing a bow and arrow with his bare hands and having it hit a guy and having the guy explode. <laughs> like Blowing him to smithereens, which is fantastic. If you haven't seen Rambo 3, you should watch it. It is absolutely amazing as an 80s action movie. Yes. It's not a good movie per se, but it's an enjoyable 80s action movie. Yeah, it's a very enjoyable action movie. Um, I always... There's two scenes I always remember and really like from it. One where one of the soldiers gets hanged and then, because he ripped all of his, like, he, he had a bunch of uh, grenades on his on his. Shirt. Oh yeah, he had a bandolier of grenades. Yeah, so like, basically, Rambo like rips all of the pins out and then kicks the guy off a ledge, and he he hangs to death, then explodes, <laughs> which is like, oh, okay, well, another one of these things where it's like, I guess he's actually really dead, <laughs> super dead. 
Yeah, and then the other scene where he basically, I think at some, you said, it's the most extreme form of field triage you ever saw, where he basically, he got a bullet wound through his guts, and the way he fixed it was filling his himself with gunpowder and lighting himself on fire, and it basically melting all of his insides together, which is like, would that work? Would that, I don't think that would actually work, would it? I mean, it would stop the bleeding, but the amount of pain you're going to go through... And I don't know what you're risking. It's like, Jesus. Well, Anyways. it's going to get you through the moment so you're not bleeding out. Yeah, I guess. And when you're in the middle of nowhere Afghanistan fighting the Russian army, you have no choice. you yeah. got to keep going on. Yeah, fair. Because you're John Rambo. Now, the one issue I have with this announcement of Rambo uh, joining the Mortal Kombat roster is that they're using the depiction of Rambo from First Blood as opposed to Rambo from... Rambo 3, where it's, which is just a total balls-out 80s action movie. Yeah. Rambo 3, as a movie, is a bit more of a character study about a, a Vietnam vet coming back with PTSD. Well, the first Rambo, yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, First Blood Yeah, is a character study, because Rambo is just that. He's a veteran of the Vietnam War with PTSD. He's a former Green Beret who was sent on a whole lot of special missions and just built up to have a lot of violence inside him saw a whole lot of bad things, did a whole lot of bad things, and was just trying to find a new life for himself in, quote-unquote, Washington State, but really it was Alberta, yeah, where they filmed it, and he's just getting picked on by some asshole sheriff. Yeah, who just basically doesn't want vagrants in his town, even though he's trying to not be a vagrant. It's It's basically a legitimately good, you know... It's a good dramatic movie. It's a good... Arguably a really good anti-war movie, too, because oh, oh, you know, yeah. it's very, like, it's like, yeah, it's pro, pro-vets, pro pro-vet mental health care and stuff, where, you know, not really making a comment specifically on the war, kind of generally saying war is bad, and it's maybe we shouldn't be putting these people through this thing. Because look yeah. at the after effects. Yeah, so it's it's a legit, like, the first Rambo movie, just which was not, didn't mention Rambo at all, it was called First Blood. Great movie. Really, actually a good movie. Similar to the first Rocky movie in that they are great character drama movies. Absolutely. But then, you know, after, <laughs> you know, somehow it became a franchise. And then with the second one and third one especially, it's it just becomes an off-the-walls, like, insane action movie. None of that character study stuff is present in Rambo 3. Oh, no, it has been whittled away by that point. Now, Rambo, or sorry, First Blood has, has a fair bit of action sequences, but the body count is extremely low. I think it might only be one or two people are actually killed in First Blood because yeah. John Rambo is trying to avoid killing people because he did so much of that in Vietnam. Yeah, he just wants to be left alone. He wants to be alone and a lot of his, uh, uh, techniques, whatever he uh, uses in his defense, are just that, defensive maneuvers, if you will. Uh, even when he's held up in the police station towards the end, the body count, very low. So, you know, I'm hoping they include Rambo, th- the depiction of uh, Stallone from Rambo 3 as maybe an additional skin, because I, I don't feel good about the first blood depiction here. It doesn't make sense in the context of Mortal Kombat, and it just being just a pure, violent gore fest. No, it really doesn't. It, it's, no. Plus, he was way more ripped and everything in the third one anyway, so he, he visually makes way more sense in the Mortal Kombat universe from Rambo 3, like when he was all, like, 
super lean, like 5% body fat, like ripped, <laughs> like Sylvester Stallone at the peak of his physical condition. Oh God. Yeah. Like in his probably his thirties, like he, early thirties, like, I don't know exactly how old he was, but like he was, he was ripped. Like if you've never seen Rambo three, holy crap. Watch it. Watch yeah. it for that reason. And if you're, if you're thinking, well, maybe, uh, you're confused. Maybe, you know, this is just a generic Rambo. No, here's a quote taken from a uh, post on the official PlayStation blog made by Dominic, uh, Chien, uh, Chienciolo, uh, who's a story and voiceover director for Netherrealm. And I apologize if I butchered his last name, but he said of the inclusion of Rambo, quote, playing as Rambo is like time traveling back with Chronica to 1982. Our character artists have perfectly captured Rambo's look from first blood. They, along with our design and cinematic teams, drew great inspiration from that film, as well as the subsequent sequels. Of course, having Sylvester Stallone voice one of the most iconic characters is an absolute thrill. We worked hard to make sure that every line of dialogue was true to the Rambo that fans know and love. End quote. So yes, this is the first blood Rambo. Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah, like... It, it doesn't make a sense, as much sense as, like, Rambo 3 in particular. But, yeah. But anyways. Nevertheless, Rambo joining the ultra-violent universe of Mortal Kombat. So, I guess uh, they can have a more badass striker. <laughs> yeah. A striker I can get behind. Finally. That's a striker you can set a watch to. Yeah. But speaking of old things, perhaps we should take some time now towards the end of the program to uh, wax nostalgic about things from yesteryear, things that are notable and celebrating milestone anniversaries. We have two television shows and one video game on tap to discuss this week. Uh, of the three of them, where do you think we should start uh, on this particular program? We could probably go oldest to newest, I think. All right, then. Oldest to newest also takes us to the only video game we have to talk, uh, talk about this week, week, as it came out for the NES on October 14th of 1990. This is one of my absolute favorite games from the NES and still in the years since. This is Dr. Mario, one of those games that really continued the tradition of early Nintendo, early Mario games of just Mario wearing different hats, doing different jobs, being more than just a plumber. Yeah. Um, in this one, he was a doctor slash pharmacist. <laughs> yes. Um, arguably more pharmacist than doctor. I, yes, more pharmacist. Yeah, yeah, I think like that's fair. Basically handing out... I mean, as a game, it's very simple. It's, it's match four with window dressing of it being, you know, just pills that are, you know, two, two colors or, you know, whatever. One color per side could be the same color. And then you have to basically take out the viruses that are of those colors. Three colors, pretty simple. Mm -hmm. But yeah, obviously just dressed up to be viruses and pills. It could literally be blocks, but whatever. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a classic puzzle game. If you haven't played it, give it a try. It's addictive. It's fun. It certainly is. It's had many different iterations through the years. Uh, I believe there was a Dr. Luigi game or a, a more recent Dr. Mario game came out for the uh, either Switch Online. No, it was uh, mobile devices. Oh, okay. Yeah, they had a, a mobile version of Dr. Mario. It was god-awful. I deleted the app uh, almost immediately. <laughs> as as someone who grew up and, and still regularly plays Dr. Mario from the NES, I could not stand it whatsoever. 
They made Luigi and a bunch of other characters doctors, each with their own powers, but it was very, very much inspired by, like, Candy Crush. And yeah. I felt that was a cheapening of the franchise, considering it predates Candy Crush by a good 20 years. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, got to keep relevant, got to try to make your App Store, you know, revenue. Uh, got to make that DNA... Um, partnership worthwhile, right? That's that's certainly true, but uh, for me, I said this is one of my favorite games from the NES, and it's true, it is. I still play it on the regular uh, because I'm good at it. Yeah. I, I'm not good at most games, and uh, certainly uh, my video game skills probably have not gotten better with age. If anything, they've lapsed. Yeah, I mean, it, it happens. But this is the one where I can still crush people at. I still have my skills. They are still sharp. When I pop it in and play it, I'm starting at level 20, which is the highest level you can start at off the hop. Yep. I start at the highest level. I'm not starting it on, you know, the highest speed setting because that's ridiculous. Then it's just all the luck of what pills you get as opposed to your skill of being able to make do with what you get. Yeah. So, but yeah, love it. Absolutely love it. This is one of those games that I have multiple times on multiple different Nintendo machines. And I, uh, well, I, I'm not going to sit here and lie and say, yes, I play it on all of them. No, because you can only play one thing at a time. And I'm not going to jump between things just to play this game. But Dr. Mario, check it out. Uh, this is when Mario was a doctor. I believe before that he was a boxing referee. Before that he was a golfer. Before that he was a, uh, or after this he was a baker in Yoshi's Cookie. Yep. Literally, he wore so many different hats in his NES era, I'm sure that had to inspire the capture effect in Mario Odyssey. Someone just said, oh, he's worn so many different hats. It also inspired the hats in Super Mario 64, how the hats themselves give you different abilities. So, yeah. So, yep. Dr. Mario for the NES? Check it out. There are way too many options to play it for you to not play it these days. So, yes do play it, but we shall move forward in time, and we have two television shows to talk about. Uh, one that started on this day in 1995, and uh, or started around this day in 1995, and one that started around this day in 2005, two are comedic programs. Uh, should we just uh, go with the older of the two here? Yeah, I think so. All right, the older of the two takes us back to October 14th, 1995, uh, when Fox decided to get in on the weekly comedic programming uh, on Saturday nights that uh, was largely dominated and uncontested by Saturday Night Live on NBC for so many years. Yeah. For 20, 25 years up by that point, or or just over 20 years. Yeah, just over 20 years, I think. Fox decided to leverage a popular uh, comedy publication at the time and launched Mad TV, the TV version of Mad Magazine. Yeah, which for the first several years, actually was pretty good. It sure was. And that initial cast was pretty fantastic. Yeah. And even even the, the second generation, after a couple of people left, was still pretty fantastic. And yeah, Mad TV was good for, I would say, a solid maybe four years. That's pretty good. Now, it, it might- lasted for way longer than that, though, which I think is... The part we'll talk about maybe more than that. Certainly, because the program Mad TV started, as I said, October 14th, 1995, but lasted until May 16th, 2009. Yeah. Hands up if you knew that Mad TV lasted on air for 14 years. Yeah, put your hands down. You're liars. Yeah, you're liars. I, I thought it was 10 years, and I thought it was 5 years too long. 
So, so like, oh, it was probably 10, and even that's a stretch. Nope, 15. Yeah. Did you know it lasted 15? Would you have even entered the possibility it was 15? Yeah. I mean... Probably not. So the issue, in case you weren't aware of this, that happened with Mad TV was that they had good characters that they would introduce, but then they would overuse them many times per episode. Mm-hmm. That's why Mad TV wasn't great. But the original characters, when they first created them, was almost unanimously hilarious. Like when they first, when they first showed Stewie, like the first, or I believe Stewart, Stewart, Stewart. When they first showed Stewart, it was hilarious. And maybe, you know, having one callback here and there was funny. But then it's like, oh, another five minute long Stewart sketch. Great. So it's going to be the same three lines they keep saying, the whole don't thing and whatever. Okay, we, we get it. Yeah, we get it. Oh, and the, the same thing with that Mrs. What was her? Miss Kwan. Miss Kwan, the whole like, okay, she has the one line she says, and this is going to go on for five minutes every single episode. That's that's what it that was my big problem with bad TV because before that it was it was arguably just as good as SNL when it first started mm-hmm. like it was really good like they they had wacky sketches where they had like still some of my favorite like Will Sasso like Will Sasso was great Will Sasso was I think my favorite part of the show when he was on it for a long time because his characterizations never really got old like he would. He didn't really have any characters that were that annoying to me. Like his recurring characters seemed a little bit funnier, like his version of Kenny Rogers and Kenny Rogers Jackass. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> but I, for some reason, the one that sticks out in my head was someone was at some party where every single guest had a very specific quirk and Will Sasso's character walked in and his quirk was that he had to chug an entire bottle of Gatorade every time he said a single word. <laughs> So he had like the 14 Gatorades just in like a flat around his arm and he was just cracking them open, drinking. He's like, hi, there, how, drink the whole thing. Eventually it's just like he had to drink like six bottles just to say, I have to go use the washroom. (laughs) It was really funny to me. And it, it was, I know it was just a blatant waste of time and just whatever they're filling, you know, the episode out. But I laughed the whole time because I'm like, he's legitimately drinking a whole bottle of Gatorade between every word. Holy crap. He was chugging them. Uh, what I recall, too, from the early years with a great cast that uh, most notably from the the original cast, I'm recalling Phil Lamar, Deborah Wilson and Nicole Sullivan. Oh, yeah. Phil Lamar was great. I mean, this is Phil Lamar before he became a mainstay of uh, animation voice acting. Yeah. Like he did. And like, Nicole Sullivan, too. Actually. And Nicole Sullivan as well. But yeah. Like. Philip Barr had like some fantastic characters, like his hyperactive UPS man, who was absolutely all over the place. But what I recall from the early years, uh, and a little bit into the second cast, and maybe less so in the third cast, the uh, product uh, commercials they do for Spitchak, <laughs> yes, or Spitchak, <laughs> yes, the whatever in a box. Like, yes, SNL does their faux parody commercials, but this was just an absolute ridiculous company where uh, they could literally do anything with. And, uh, oh, God, was uh, I'm trying to think, wasn't there some sort of, like, excuse phone or, like, oh, dial-in yeah. excuse line or something? Yeah, where it was just, like, the excuse service or something where it's, like, 
person basically, it was a button that came up with an excuse for you. So <laughs> the sketch was just, it was blatantly done to be kind of like, obviously bad, but it, that part added to it where it was just like, hello, priest speaking. It's like, I can't go to church today. I beep have some crazy physiological condition with my, you know, bowels or something happening. I have Ebola. It's just like, wow, that's a good excuse. <laughs> and I, was it, was it, um, Mad TV that had the home barber kit in a box? I think it was. Where it was, it was basically just like, started off like harmless enough and then got out of control and eventually a lot of them would turn basically bloody and the person would end up super disfigured somehow. Uh, that sounds about right for Mad TV. I yeah. mean, Fox wanting to be edgy and push things. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the great differences is there wasn't like a weekly ce- celebrity host. Yeah. There'd be like some celebrity cameos and appearances and whatnot, but like a whole episode that they did with Kiss for some reason, which makes no sense, but yeah. sure. And they'd have, as I was going to say, musical acts every so often, but it was a sketch comedy show that ran directly in competition with SNL. Yeah. And I think even on the show, they, they made jokes about the fact that like they were there to try and like compete with SNL. And then as the years went on, I think they made more and more jokes on the show about like, you know, how they're still on and, you know, Fox would can, you know, could cancel them at any minute or whatnot. <laughs> yep. Cause they just didn't care. And it was Saturday night on, uh, late on a Saturday night on a Fox network. So who's, who's really, the, who's watching that? Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, some really good entertaining sketches, characters that were set fairly one dimensional, but they had entertaining moments. Yeah. And a crazy cast of people who came through at various points. Yeah. Like a lot of people who were on Mad TV are still mainstays of comedy now. Like, I mean, even like as, as character actors or even in the voice world, like Mad TV, I think spawned a lot of people who did more voice work than almost any other show, I think. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy to think about. Uh, even look, I think in the second generation cast, Alex Borstein. Yeah. Alex Borstein. Before Family Guy. Yep. Before the Marvelous Miss Maple on Amazon. And yep. she was nominated for an Emmy just recently. Yeah. Maisel. Oh, Miss Maisel. Excuse yes. me. Yes. And yeah, she was, she's fantastic in that show and several other people as well. Like Will Sasso went on to do stuff. Phil Lamar obviously is like, he's, he's on every cartoon, every cartoon. Like there's yeah. And video game basically. Yeah. Um, and then like Nicole Sullivan was in like tons of stuff. Uh, yeah. You said Alex Borstein, Deborah Uh, Wilson too. Has done a lot of voice work. Uh, Michael McDonald. True too. You know, he's, he keeps, he keeps pretty busy. He went on to be the voice of Gandhi on yep, Clone High. On Clone High. <laughs> Which I just recently rewatched as well. Can still recommend. Fantastic. Uh, worked with Nicole Sullivan on that show too. Yep. So Mad TV, uh, you can find the best clips online. We'll say that. The whole series does not need rewatching. No. Just look up Kenny Rogers, uh, Jackass. You'll probably be fine. I distinctly remember the one segment of Kenny Rogers Jackass where he had to chug like four four liter bottle or jugs of milk. <laughs> yes. And it was the grossest thing. <laughs> also not thinking about it. Also look up Will Sasso as Elvis. Cause there was, 
there was an episode where they did three different sketches, which represented Elvis at the three different points in his life. And it was basically seeing his crazy descent into like how he died. <laughs> but it was really dark and really funny. And it was just like, at one point, it's just, I can't even explain it. It was Will Sasso at his funniest, I think. So yeah, YouTube clips. That's all you really need to see for Mad TV. You don't need to seek out like DVD sets or anything like that. It's, it's not a binge-worthy show. No. But, and, yeah. and a lot of the comedy will be uh, referential that uh, has ins- passed. Yeah, insanely dated. Yeah. But uh, still entertaining for what it was. And uh, as we said, the best clips are online. But uh, we move on to a show that uh, came out 15 years ago now, debuting on October 17th of the year 2005. This has to be one of the funniest shows from the mid-2000s into the 2010s, at least in my opinion, is... Uh, it is the Colbert Report. Yeah, like, so there were, back in the early 2000s, the way that a lot of us got interested in news and, like, just keeping up with news and stuff was by watching The Daily Show. I mean, it wasn't a news program. John Stewart was very adamant that, you know, it was a comedy show, but it did a really good job of delivering the news, maybe in a less partisan way than a lot of news stations did. Mm-hmm. It just basically pointed out, you know, it pointed out the ridiculous clips, like pointing out how ridiculous some of the things that people said while keeping you informed about the general message, you know, like a comedy show. Yeah, it would have to be based in some sort of, you know, truth of the news. Yeah, but like one of the great things about The Daily Show was that they had correspondence and they always had like, you know, silly titles like, oh, the senior Black correspondent. Yeah, everyone was a senior something correspondent. Yeah, and you know, and it spawned the careers of like a lot of different now famous people, like you know, uh, John Oliver and like uh, Ed Helms, Steve Carell, Steve Carell. But arguably the most famous, well, maybe not the most famous. I think Steve Carell is probably the most famous, but maybe second most famous of the senior whatever correspondents was Stephen Colbert, and. The character that of Stephen Colbert that Stephen Colbert established on The Daily Show was a crazy right wing, super conservative religious nut job that basically like tried to speak the Tea Party America of the time. And his character, you know, it, just the way that his delivery and everything was so perfect, and it spawned off onto his own show. And that I would say that the Colbert Report for a while was more popular than the Daily Show. Uh, I, I can certainly see that. It was also possibly funnier given that, uh, it was an absolute send up. Uh, it was pure satire. Oh, absolutely pure satire, which I, the only thing I feared about that show was that people weren't getting it as satire. I, I always got the distinct impression that part of the reason why it was more popular than The Daily Show was because maybe there was conservatives thinking that he was a conservative and he was saying the things that they actually believed, even if he was saying it in such a way that like he thought was being over the top. Because I don't know if some people thought it was super over the top. Maybe they just thought he was speaking the truth. So they wanted to watch this show as like, you know, maybe the, the balance, the thing that balances out The Daily Show because the Bailey Daily Show is obviously mm-hmm. like some oh, left wing left wing trash, whereas you know, where's my right wing comedy show? Oh, finally, my right wing comedy show, the the Colbert Report. No, it's also a left wing show. It's pointing out how ridiculous what you're saying is. 
but is it going far enough, I guess? That was my only fear that I always had the whole time with the show. I found it very funny, but the amount of times I saw people kind of quote Stephen Colbert in a serious way, it was like, no. Well, I think those people are also then just revealing themselves to be true idiots. Yeah. Dum-dums, even. Like the people who, you know, get outraged over The Onion, (laughs) who think that that's a real article or something. It's like, no, it's The Onion. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> so for four nights a week, yeah, it was four nights a week, Stephen Colbert would come into your homes as uh, a character, just a hyped-up version of a right-wing, you know, cable news channel talking head, uh, almost like the Daily Show's version of Bill O'Reilly at the time. Yeah. Uh, on his own show called The Colbert Report, playing a character named Stephen Colbert. Yeah, which, you know, was maybe, is maybe a little bit of a weird thing to wrap your head around, because his actual name is Stephen Colbert, but he was playing a character called Stephen Colbert. But the Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report was not actual Stephen Colbert. Actual Stephen Colbert is the actual host of... Now the... Now the host of Late Night. Yes. Or The Late Show. Or The Late Show. He took over for David Letterman. He did. On CBS. But yeah, it's... Uh, which is why... As soon as he took over and like he basically stopped playing the, Col- the, the Stephen Colbert... Colbert Report character, I think a lot of people were confused. They're like, well, wait, why are you saying all this left-wing stuff now? It's like, because that's who I am. That was a crazy character I was playing. What are you talking about? I think that just speaks to how well he played the character. Yeah, but, like, everything about it, like, he hammed up everything. Like, the whole, like, every intro sequence, like, he would basically do a dance number, and, like, he would look over at the cameras, and they'd be always, like, He'd be staring like face first into the cameras and he'd know always he'd, he'd move his head and it would like the camera would switch to where he was looking at all times. And that always cracked me up. It's for just being like a half hour, you know, almost comedy news program or comedy commentary program. It had such a fully realized world yeah. to go along with the character of Stephen Colbert. I mean, first and foremost, the desk he would sit at every night was the in the shape of C. Yeah. yeah. For Colbert and just the absolute egomania that there was on the set. I mean, the amount of knickknacks and tchotchkes you would see on the set to be like, oh, Stephen Colbert was presented this. You know, he had like, um, he had Captain America's shield yep. that was presented to him at one point. Uh, also, he had th- like the fireplace, he had a giant like self portrait over top the mantle and each season there'd be a new portrait yeah. of him standing next to the mantle with a portrait over top and it just became like this almost like recursive thing of like the portrait of him staying next to the portrait of him staying next to the portrait and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, and he had guests on every night and sometimes even the guests would kind of lose focus on who they're talking to. Is it the person or is it the character? Yeah. Uh, I distinctly recall, distinctly recall him interviewing actually a current sitting U S Supreme court justice. I think it was Sonia Sotomayor who was doing a, a tour for uh to promote a book she had released at the time. And, at one point, she kind of had to ask, who am I talking to, as Stephen Colbert asked a ridiculous question. Yeah. Like, oh, interesting. So I think he'd probably just answer, well, you're talking to Stephen Colbert. Yeah. <laughs> Which is brilliant, by the way. But it's it was a show where I'm sure there was a lot of work that went into making it look like they were having a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, and it wouldn't just be him talking politics all the time. There'd be a whole a slew of different segments uh, that would be 
fun as hell. And most notably, I recall too, uh, the segments of cheating death, uh, stealing a life with Dr. Stephen, Stephen T. Colbert DFA. Yes. <laughs> where he'd find some sort of like, you know, medical related news item, ham it up and say, Oh, well, my, you know, uh, friends at this company and friends and sponsors at this company have invented blah. And the writing staff would clearly have a whole lot of fun coming up with ridiculous side effects for him to say and try and make him crack up saying them. Yeah. And he would sometimes, which would just make it even funnier. Yeah, because he's so professional, he would rarely crack. Like, he's one of those guys, I think, second only to, like, Will Ferrell. Like, I don't think Will Ferrell ever cracks, because Will Ferrell is, like, a machine. Yes. But, like, Stephen Colbert is almost there. <laughs> but, yeah, I <laughs> I like the fact that, it, like, he called himself Dr. Colbert, but it was like DFA, <laughs> doctorate in fine arts. It's not a medical doctor at all. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, you have a doctorate, but you're not a doctor. Sure don't. <laughs> so oh. for almost the entirety of the run of uh, of Daily Show and Colbert Report being back-to-back, that was my, like, okay, day is almost done. I'm about to go to bed. We'll put this on. Yeah. You know, that's a fine hour of programming, Daily Show followed by Colbert Report, and I... I watched a whole lot of Colbert Report and loved every minute of it. Although there was one night I stayed up way too late watching the Colbert Report because it was uh, an episode where they had Paul McCartney on. He was the guest and also musical guest. And he was on promoting whatever new album at the time. I don't recall what it was, but he was on there as the guest. So they opened a little chit chat and it must have been a thing where probably on the American feed and, and or American broadcast of the show is probably just edited down to the normal half hour time slot. But on Canada, we must have gotten like the raw thing because it was an hour and a half of Paul McCartney performing on Colbert Report. Yeah. I, I of course, had to watch the whole thing and went to bed way too late. Yeah. But it was worth every goddamn minute of it. <laughs> yep. So it was, uh, it was a really entertaining show. And, uh, you know, I, I miss that character, but I understand why St- Stephen Colbert felt he had to kind of retire it after almost 10 years because it ended on December 18th, 2014 because Stephen Colbert was taking over for David Letterman in 2015. And so he couldn't do both shows at the same time, which would be a little insane. So, yeah. Uh, and also I recall in interviews in the lead up to him starting the late show, he was saying that he would, he was just getting tired of it. He was getting tired of doing the character and uh, it was time. And also that was starting to be the rise of Donald Trump and just right wing, right wing politics was getting even more extreme that was starting to catch up with where the satire was. Yeah. Which, you know, a lot of comedians at that time basically pointed out that it's like, I think it was Trey Parker even was saying like, no, we, we can't parody this anymore. Yeah. Cause it's too insane to parody. Like when real life is, like when our satire that we can come up with can't even match the insanity of real life, what's the point? We'll just go somewhere else for our comedy. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's the same thing. So it's a shame, but it, there was a lot of good years of that character. And yeah, like, like you as well. Like I used to catch the rerun the next day cause they would have the rerun at like, I think it was like four thirty or something. It was mm-hmm. A more reasonable time. More reasonable time. I guess I would get home from work and, you know, I'd catch the Daily Show and, you know, Colbert Report, you know, just as I got home and then whatever. So that, that was fine as well. But yeah, I used to watch it every day as well. And it was a good hour long block of programming and 
Yeah. And also the, they extended that whole, uh, th- that whole character into, you know, different books written by Stephen Colbert and the writing staff where it just, as you're reading it, it is Stephen Colbert just talking in your head and it's all in the character's voice. And yeah. it's, it's a ridiculously realized world that they created for this character. This yeah. very specific niche character. So it's impressive. You can find a whole lot of clips online. Um, I don't believe there are DVD sets. That would be ridiculous. For yeah, a, a daily show that ran for 10 years. Yeah, daily topical show. Yeah. Uh, find the best clips online, The Colbert Report. It is worth your time as it ran for 10 years or almost 10 years, but got its start, start on October 17th, 2005. And before that, we also recommended you watch clips online from Mad TV. That is as it's celebrating its, oh God, 25th anniversary. Yep. Who doggy. And before that, we spoke of, or at least I mainly spoke of the, because <laughs> it's one of my favorite NES games, Dr. Mario from the NES that turns 30 years old. God damn, that's a long time. I don't care. I still enjoy it. Absolutely. It is a classic. So that about wraps us up for this week's edition of the program. We thank you so much for joining us once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. It's good to be back with you and hope you enjoyed us being back with you. Whatever it is you are doing, cooking, cleaning, gardening, uh, just staring at the window, whatever it is, perhaps you're working and, uh, or at least making it look like you're working or working out, which is also impressive. Good for you. Do some more reps for us. <laughs> Uh, we thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to subscribe to our program on both iTunes and Google Play. Uh, direct links to our pla- our page on both those platforms can be found on our homepage of the Arcade Show dot com. And follow us on social media. We're uh, on Twitter at the Arcade Show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Arcade Show. So, uh, so that is all the post end of or basically end of show business wrapped us up. So let us just simply say, Until next time, good night, everybody. Good night.